Well, it has been our privilege to be here with you through this weekend as we've thought particularly about missions and what God is doing around the world. Uh, it was, I think, uh, five years ago, probably to the Sunday that I was last with you here in this pulpit, having the privilege to bring God's Word, and we can say thank you to the Lord for your prayers in particular as you have prayed for us, and God has preserved us. He has prospered the work, and so we come to say thank you not just to our faithful God, but to you, His people, who have prayed for us. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn in the Old Testament to the book of Hosea. It's not too hard to find if you turn right to the middle of your Bible, Psalms, uh, keep going, Proverbs, you'll see a couple of larger prophets there, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the book of Daniel, and then right after Daniel is the book of Hosea. And I want us to consider this morning Hosea chapter 2, and I'm going to read for us Hosea chapter 2, verses 2 through 15. Hear now the word of God. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy." because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. 
The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we give You thanks for Your Word. We give You thanks that we can hear it this morning in our own language, in a tongue that we can understand. We hear these words. We understand the images that are here. And yet we confess at the same time that we have these privileges that without the working of Your Holy Spirit, we really will not understand, we really will not be able to obey. And so, Lord, we pray that as the message comes to us this morning, that You might indeed open our ears, that You might soften our hearts, that You might illumine our minds so that we can understand what You have to say to us and that by the powerful working of Your Spirit, we might be enabled to obey so that we wouldn't be like that people who look in the mirror and going away quickly forget what they look like, but we would be not just hearers of Your Word, but doers also. And so we pray that You would do that, not for our sake, not for our righteousness, but all for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we pray it in His name. Amen. Well, as we come to this text this morning, you might first be asking yourself, why are we beginning here in Hosea chapter 2? Why would you go there to Hosea chapter 2? Hosea is a book that I've been studying for a little while, and I hope that even as we come here to the beginning of this second chapter, that you'll probably know something of chapter 1 of Hosea, because it's one of those biblical stories, those biblical accounts that we know well. It's about a prophet, isn't it? It's about a prophet named Hosea, and God calls him to that ministry of bringing the Word of God to his people. And he gives Hosea a particular command, a difficult, a challenging command as he, God orchestrates his life. And Hosea takes a wife who he knows is going to be unfaithful to him. And sure enough, that's exactly how it turns out. They have children, and God uses this family, God uses Hosea, God uses Gomer, his unfaithful wife. He uses even the very names of his children to point the people of Israel back to God, to show them on the one hand their unfaithfulness, and it's in contrast to the great faithfulness of their God. And then we come to chapter 2, and here we're in the middle of this marriage, we're in the middle of this situation, wondering maybe what's going to happen. Here's Hosea, the faithful husband, the one preaching the Word of God, bringing it to the people. And we have his wife continuing in her unfaithfulness, continuing to go after her lover's throwing it in the face of Hosea, breaking the commandments of God, continuing in her adultery. We might say, what's going to happen? Is there any hope for this marriage? Is there any hope for this nation, the image that God uses here of the nation of Israel and their own unfaithfulness to God? Is there any hope? And so this morning, I want us to see, really just ask three questions and answer them. First of all, how does God speak to His wayward people? And I hope this morning that 
as we look at the people of Israel and consider Hosea and Gomer and more broadly the people of Israel, that you'll see, yes, we're wayward people too. And we need to know, how does God speak to His wayward people? And then secondly, how does God show Himself as a God who punishes? You and I know, we read about the third commandment earlier, that God hates sin. He is a God who is going to punish sin, unrepentant sinners. How does God show Himself as the God who punishes, but then how does God show Himself as the God who pursues? Because I think here in chapter 2, we have all of the answers to those questions, but all of the wonderful truths here about who God is, as on the one hand, the God who punishes, but also the God who pursues. Hosea begins here in chapter 2, verse 2, saying, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And here, right at the beginning of verse 2, we have something, I think, that will help us to understand something about God and how He speaks to His wayward people. Hosea likes to use words in the sense of a kind of play on words and to use words that you can see in one way, but that you can also see in another way. Words that on the one hand might communicate the anger of God and the punishment that He's going to bring, but on the other hand, it can also communicate the hope that we have in him. And this word that he uses right here at the beginning of verse 2, plead with your mother, plead, is one of those words. It's like the word Jezreel back in chapter 1. Jezreel was his firstborn son. And that word can mean to scatter and destroy. And that's exactly what God was prophesying against the northern tribes. For their sin, he was going to destroy them, he was going to scatter them to the nations. But on the other hand, That same word can also be used of the sower who goes out into the field, the farmer going out into the field, sowing the seed. And yes, it's scattered in that sense, but there, contained in the kernels of those seeds, is hope of a plant, a new crop, a harvest that is coming. And so it's the same here in chapter 2, verse 2, this word plead, you know what that sense is, right? That idea of pleading with somebody, please do this for me. Please don't continue in your sin. It's going to only lead to death and destruction. Please come back to me. We can hear Hosea speaking to his wife who's gone after other lovers, who's committed adultery saying to her, please come back, please come back, put your whoring aside, don't do it any longer. We see it in other places like in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Here in 1 Samuel chapter 24 verse 15. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David pleading with Saul who has gone after him, who's trying to destroy him without cause, 
pleading with Saul, please, don't do this anymore. Jeremiah, the prophet, uses that sense very often. But that same word here, used and translated here, plead, plead with your mother, plead, for she's not my wife, I'm not her husband, can be not only a sense of pleading and bringing back, but contending with and accusing. The idea of quarreling with someone. Back in Numbers chapter 20, the people of Israel were there in the desert. They had no water. Their water had run out. And what does the text tell us? It says that they quarreled with God. What are you doing, God? Why are you bringing us into this desert? Why are you bringing us here to die? They were fighting with God. They were quarreling with Him. In another place, it's contend in the sense of an accusation. Hosea chapter 4, verse 4, yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest, God judging the priests for the sins that they had committed. God is arguing with them. He's contending with them. And so, we can see here as God speaks to His people, yes, on the one hand, He pleads with them, saying to them, come back, put away your sins from before you. But in another sense, He's troubling the people, He's quarreling with them and saying, what are you doing? Don't do it anymore. I am going to work in your lives so that you will not sin anymore, so that you will put your sins aside. But why does God do that? He contends, He accuses His people, not just to point out their sin, not just to punish them for their sin, but indeed because He's pursuing them, because He wants to bring them back. And God is always pursuing His people. Why? Well, here with the people of Israel, it's because of the covenant that God had made with Abram. Those many, many years before, God had promised to Abram He's going to bless him, make him a blessing, make him a great nation. And that's what He is continuing to promise to do. Even as they turn away from Him, yet God is still pursuing them. God pursues His people even if He needs to punish them to bring Him back. And so we come now to this first idea here that we see in Hosea. On the one hand, we see a God who punishes. And it's very clear here in the text as Hosea speaks to his wife Gomer, as God through this example of the family speaks to the people of Israel, that God is indeed a God who punishes sin. We see it there in verse 3. He's saying, plead with her. Plead with her to come back because if she will not, I will strip her naked. I will make her as in the day she was born. I will make her like a wilderness, like a parched land. I will kill her with thirst. There are consequences to sin, aren't there? There are very real consequences. That's what 
Hosea is saying to his wife, you're not going to be my wife any longer. I will put you aside. I'm not going to be your husband, the one who protects you and can watch over you. I will strip you naked. I will make you like a wilderness, that dry desert where there is no life. I will kill her with thirst. That's what he says. Verse 4, upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. That's one of the things you see here in the book of Hosea that even as Hosea and Gomer and their marriage is highlighted, that that sin carries on into the children as well. Back to those ten words that God gave to the people of Israel there at Mount Sinai, right? If you do not obey, if you disobey my commandments, you will be cursed even to the third and the fourth generation, and that's what we see here, upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. Now, we don't know whether it's her sin and her example or if her children have carried on in the sin of Hosea, but you don't need me to tell you that very often our own children commit those very same sins that they see in us because they are indeed just like us children of Adam. But here we see a God who punishes those who sin, for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. She's broken the commandments. She has broken that covenant, that marriage covenant that she made with her husband. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how sin warps our minds and changes our understanding so that we cannot even see the truth of things before us? Who was it that gave to Gomer her bread and water, her wool and flax, her oil and drink? Not these lovers she'd gone after, but her husband who wanted to care for her. Who was it that had given Israel everything they needed? It wasn't their own efforts. It was God who gave them these things. And he had reminded them in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, even as they're in the desert, ready to go into the land, that land flowing with milk and honey, he said, don't forget, don't forget where your blessings come from. And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Even the very food that they ate came from God. And yet in their sin, they've turned away and said, no, it was us. It was our own efforts, our own tilling and planting in the fields. 
forgetting that it's God who gives the sun and the water. Sin so often says it's our own efforts. And so God points that out to us to punish, yes, to punish sin, a very clear breaking of the commandments here. But another word that we might use here, and I think is very appropriate, not only in the context, but as we think of our own situation, is discipline, right? These are God's covenant people, God's old covenant people. And He had promised to them to bring them into the land. He had promised to bless them. He had promised one day to bring a Savior who would indeed wipe away all of their sins. And these are God's covenant people who turn away, and yet God says, no, I want to bring you back. And how does He do that? Sometimes He does it by disciplining us, taking away the blessings that He's given, taking away the bread and the water, the wool and the flax, the oil and the drink, uncovering her. Again, we can go further down, and there's another section beginning in verse 10 where we see the punishments, the discipline that God brings to show Gomer her sin the ways in which God shows us our sin. Now I will uncover her lewdness, he says in verse 10, in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. You see, sin is fun, isn't it? We don't sin, we don't turn away from God to various vices because it hurts. We do it because we like it. We do it because it's fun. And that's what God is saying here. He says, I'm going to put an end to all of that mirth, that joy you find in your sin, in those adulteries, in that deceit, in that turning from God. And all your feasts, your new moons, this idolatry that she was committing with these lovers, he says, I'm going to put an end to all of that, all of that. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. It's like God is taking out all the underpinnings, like the foundation of the house is rotting so that it might collapse and she might see. She might see and recognize her sin, and that it is indeed God who is disciplining her, and that she might see that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God is the God who punishes, and yet even that discipline The discipline is always to point us back to Him. Why does Hosea do that? So that Gomer might come back to Him, might come back into His house, and might come under His roof, under His care. That's why God disciplines you and I when He finds us in our sin. 
wondering, how do we get out of this? How can I stop? And sometimes God comes to us and He needs to discipline us, to point us again to our need of a Savior. You see, ultimately, that's what God wanted, wasn't it? God takes no joy in the punishment, in having to do this, to inflict this on the people of Israel, and it's because He wants to bring them back. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned burnt offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me declares the Lord. They had forgotten the Lord. But the wonderful truth is, even as we think of Gomer and Hosea here, we think of the people of Israel just about to go off, to be scattered in exile, there is only one, there is only one who has ever been utterly forsaken, who has been killed who has had everything taken away, and whom God has utterly forsaken, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as we think about God punishing, disciplining His people, we can be thankful that He never utterly casts us aside, that while we still draw a breath, There is still opportunity to turn back, to ask forgiveness, to turn from our sins, to turn to Jesus, and He will take us back. Because only Jesus can take away and remove that ultimate punishment for sin, which is an eternity in hell. Only Jesus can do that, and that's where God was pointing the people of Israel, even here as He shows Himself as a God who does punish, who does discipline His people. And it's a good reminder for us that no sin goes unpunished. And if we will not turn to God's Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we will take that punishment on ourselves. But if we repent and believe, that sin can be forgiven. And there's purpose in God's discipline for us. And it's a reminder, too, in our own lives, in our own family lives, that there really are, aren't there, two ways that we interact, for example, with our children. On the one hand, we do need to discipline them, to point them and turn them away from their sins, to recognize the severity of it. In Proverbs chapter 19, verse 18, the writer says, discipline your son. He will not die. No, because we want to point them away from their sin and themselves and point them to the Savior. And as elders in the church of Christ, that's what we do sometimes. We discipline because we are protecting the sheep so that they don't go and run off the cliff but we bring them back. The God who punishes, but we see also the God who pursues. Because even as God here reminds Gomer of her sin through her husband Hosea and their children as well, we recognize that 
Here is a God who is always pursuing His people, running after them, so to speak. How does God show Himself as the one who pursues? Well, He pleads, doesn't He? Back in verse 2, plead with your mother, plead with her, please come back, turn away from those lovers. They cannot give you what you want. I will take you back as a faithful husband, as a husband who pursues his wife. And it's a reminder of the God who all through the Old Testament is a Savior who pursues His people. He brings them out of bondage in Egypt. He brings them out into the desert. He gives them every blessing. And what do they do? They say, we want to go back to Egypt. And yet He keeps going after them. Yes, He does judge them. But He keeps pursuing His people. They come into the promised land. He gives that to them, and they forget Him, just as Hosea says in chapter 2, verse 13, they forgot me, declares the Lord, and yet God goes after them again. He says, yes, I will continue to pursue you. And it's a picture of our own Savior, the one who was to come, who was always pursuing people. Think about all the various interactions that we see in the Gospels. So often it's with people who we might not expect. The Pharisees accused Jesus of eating with tax collectors and sinners, people they said don't deserve the blessings of God, and yet that's who Jesus pursued. Those who were notorious sinners, that's who Jesus went after and pursued. How does He do that? Well, look down at chapter 2, verse 6. It says, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. He's pursuing her by building up a hedge of protection around her, by building up this hedge so that she can't go after her lover, so that she can't participate in this particular sin. A hedge of thorns, ouch, it hurts. I don't want to go that direction. God's reminding us, yes. Sin has consequences. Yes, sin hurts, and sometimes we need to feel the pain. I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths, right? We have our own way, the way we want to do things. We want to follow after our our own ideas, our own devices, but God says, no, not your paths, but my paths, and I'm going to make a way. I'm going to make a way. You won't be able to find your lovers. You won't be able to find those idols that you have gone after. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. This is what God does. Just like Hosea, why is he doing this? Why is he making it hard for her to run away so that she'll come to her senses, 
so that she'll come to her senses and realize, no, it really is better with my husband to whom I have made marriage vows. Life really is better there under the blessing of God. For the people of Israel to say it really is better to serve the one true and living God than to serve all of these idols made of wood and stone and gold and silver. Hosea is praying that she will come to her senses. Reminds me of a parable that Jesus tells in the New Testament in Luke chapter six in Luke chapter fifteen. It'll be familiar to you, the parable of the prodigal son. You remember that son who had everything, just like the people of Israel, right, in the Old Testament. He had everything, but what does he want? He wants more. He wants half his inheritance. His father gives it to him. He runs away to a far-off country. He spends all his money partying, enjoying life, bringing friends around him. His money runs out. And where does he find himself then? The very lowest point at his life, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He wanted to eat the slop they fed to the pigs. But then in verse 17, there's the change. Listen to what it says, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He came to himself. He came to his senses and realized, I need to go back. I've been sinning, and so I need to go back to my father. I will arise and go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. That's what Hosea wants for his wife. That's how God pursues you. He comes to you in your sin and says, why? In God's providence, He keeps you maybe from even killing yourself. And He says, no, don't do it. So that you might come to your senses and say, yes, I want to serve this God who pursues me. I will come back because it really is for my own good, because she will recognize that everything comes from God. Verse 8 says, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. You see, before she had spent all of that on the Baal, she had said, I got this all by myself. This is mine. My wealth is mine. But now she will recognize, and God helps us to see that every good thing, every good and perfect gift comes from Him, comes from our Savior. The grain, the wine, the oil, everything came from Him. And then down in verse 14, we hear more of how God speaks, how God pursues after this wayward wife of whom we all are an example. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly 
to her. You see, God doesn't only discipline us. He doesn't only speak law to us to remind us that we have broken His law, that we have gone after other gods, that we have created idols in our own image. But He speaks tenderly to us. He speaks grace to us that we do not deserve, praying that we will come as recognizing He is our first love, alluring her, bringing her into the wilderness. We might think, why would He bring her into the wilderness, that place, the desert, the dry place, the place of death? But that was, wasn't it, the very first place where God brought His people to speak to them, to show them His glory, to show them His grace and not destroying a sinful people. He will bring them and remind them and speak tenderly to her as we hear the same words in Isaiah chapter 40. Yes, the same people of Israel who had sinned so grievously against God, but Isaiah is to bring these words of comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Speak tenderly because God's grace is now evident. God's grace is here. And isn't it wonderful as we think of God pursuing His people that it is indeed the Lord who pursues us. He's the one who takes that first step. As John reminds us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it was God who first loved us, just like the people of Israel. They were slaves in Egypt. They had nothing to give to God, and yet He pursued them. He delivered them. He gave them His law. He showed them His grace, just as in Christ God has shown that to us. The theme of our missions conference this weekend has been that verse from Romans chapter 10, verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And this God who pursues, this is good news for Gomer. This is good news for the people of Israel. This is good news for us. And my question to you this morning, as you serve a God who has pursued you, who has brought you into His family, do you pursue people like God does? It's a question about our own witness, our own evangelism. God has pursued you. Who are you pursuing after? There's people all around us who are running away from God. They are running as fast as their feet will carry them into their sin, into their idolatry, into their false thinking. And maybe God is calling us to run after them because we have the truth. We can run after them and bring them to a place where they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached. You can bring them into your life so that they can see that lived out, to see what the gospel of Jesus Christ does in the life of a sinner. As I think about Haiti, I'm reminded how faithful God is in pursuing His people. 
Uh, just last year, a good friend of mine whose father was a Methodist pastor in Haiti for a lot of years who now lives in the United States emailed me these two documents, and they were documents from 1807, almost 200 years old. And they were documents, one was a letter written by a ship captain. And he was a ship captain who in 1807 docked in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. The country had just become independent three years before. And he was docking his ship there, dropping off goods. And this captain was a believer, and as he looked around him, he saw that there was no gospel witness in that land. It was a land steeped in Roman Catholicism, a land full of people worshiping idols, worshiping in their animistic beliefs. And he said, there's no gospel witness here, so I'm going to write a letter to the government. And it's this letter where he writes to the minister of religion and says, I wonder if you might allow us to send a couple of missionaries to Haiti who could come here and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he sent a Bible along with his letter. And then the other document is the reply from that minister of religion, that official in the Haitian government. He says thank you to him. And it's a wonderful letter just saying thank you. Yes, we would welcome these missionaries to come and minister to our people. And thank you so much for giving me that Bible that I might read it. You see, God was pursuing His people in Haiti through this man, through these Protestant missionaries, and over the years to come, through many who would go to that land. But He was pursuing, wasn't He, those slaves, those people that the French had ripped from their homes in West Africa, brought them across the ocean to work the plantations, to live and die in a country that was not their own. But they came with their own false religions, and yet God pursued them, even across an ocean, then and there in 1807, to bring the gospel to Haiti. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And that's where I want to end this morning. It's an image that God uses here in Hosea chapter 2, verse 15. And at first glance, you might think, what is that talking about? Another one of these geographical names in the Old Testament that maybe doesn't mean a whole lot to you, Beersheba. Canaan, the lakes, the rivers, the valley of Achor, where is that? But Hosea is pointing us back. He's pointing us back to an event in the history of Israel in the book of Joshua. Do you remember the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble? And back in Joshua chapter 6, the people have defeated Jericho, the walls have fallen. God has given a great, great victory to His people. And next, in chapter 7, they're going against the city of Ai. And as they come there, thinking they're going to easily defeat this people, they're turned around 
Some Israelites are killed, they're run off, they're routed before these people, and they wonder, what is going on? Joshua tears his clothes, he falls to the earth on his face before the ark and prays, and God reveals to him what's happened. His people have sinned. Achan has taken some of the devoted things that were to be for God. And God says, that one, that sinner needs to be punished. That sin needs to be removed from Israel, from my sight. And so the punishment comes on this man, Achan, whose sin is revealed to the people of Israel. And he's come and he's stoned with stones. He is burned with fire. Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. The place where God reveals his justice. The place where trouble was brought on the people of Israel. What does God say? He's going to make it a door of hope. And isn't that how it is for us? We, a people who come into this world as sinners, a people who so often, even if God has worked in our life and saved us, need that discipline of God because we so quickly turn to our sins. But God says there's hope because that valley of Achor, that place where judgment has come on sin, I can make into a door of hope, a door of hope. And I'm reminded how there, as Joshua speaks to the people of Israel and speaks to Achan, saying, how is it that you have done an outrageous thing in Israel? Your sin is an outrageous thing, that you would take what is God's, that you would sin in this way when God has given you the whole land before you. You would take some gold and a beautiful garment. You have done an outrageous thing. But isn't that how sin is? And it should remind us of another outrageous thing that has been done, and it's the arrests and the trial and the death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Those who were God's people reject their Savior and send Him to the cross to die. An outrageous thing is done in Israel, yet it is through, isn't it? Through the Lord Jesus Christ alone, through Him alone that salvation comes. The door of hope, a hope and a future, as Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 20, 11. But praise be to God that we serve a God who, yes, does punish sin, does discipline His people, but we serve a God who pursues us, a God who will pursue one of His people to the very ends of the earth. And that's why we preach the gospel. That's why we live lives that are worthy of our calling so that people might see that 
here in Grand Rapids, here in this state, but in Haiti and Uganda and all around the world because God has His chosen people. He is pursuing them so that the valley of Achor, that place of trouble and of sin, might become a door of hope. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we give You thanks that we are constantly reminded not only of our sin, of Your law and how we have broken it, but also of Your grace, that we are indeed like sheep without a shepherd, and yet You are that gracious shepherd who brings us back from the precipice, who brings us into the fold, into that place of protection. And we thank You that You have been doing that for Your covenant people for generations upon generations. We pray that You would continue to do that in our day. We think of many that we know and love who are running from You. We pray that You might pursue them, that they might see their sin, that they might turn from it, that they might see their grace, and that You might save them. We pray for ourselves that You would help us to remain faithful to You. And that even this week, that by Your Spirit, You might take these words, that You might help us to apply them to our lives, and that we would be thankful that we serve a God who has not turned away from us, but who has turned His face toward us in blessing. And so, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.